I would like to <coughs> spend the first part of the evening reflecting on what in Pali is called piti, joy. The next of the factors of awakening. First, I think it's very important to acknowledge that no matter <coughs> how far away it may feel to be, we all have the capacity for joy. Hmm? It is a, <coughs> a potentiality, a seed within our minds, within our hearts. It is also probably one of our deepest longings, how to live with joy, how to have that sense of joy more present in our life. Now, there's a few things I'd like to reflect on here, and I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that longing as being quite valid, as an aspiration, as a wholesome aspiration and cultivation. I think it's also very important to see that sometimes this longing is most realistically embodied in carefully examining our lives and our minds to see what are the conditions that allow that joy to be present. What are the conditions that allow that joy to arise? And what are the conditions that actually suffocate joy? What are the conditions that suffocate piti? Now, some of them are very evident and all too characteristic of our cultures and lives. I think for joy to be present, one of the conditions is we need to stop being so busy. That simple. You know, in, in Chinese, the symbol for busyness, it translates as heart killing. Sometimes it feels we have no choices around that busyness, but I would encourage you to carefully look if that is so. That there is some amount of doing that is inevitable in all of our lives. Busyness is actually a state of mind. Hmm? Busyness is a state of mind. We can actually do many things in our lives without being busy. Busyness has a lot to do with entertaining. It's like a multiplex. Entertaining multiple preoccupations or endeavoring to do so at the same time. This is a kind of feature of the mental state of busyness. It's like a multiplex of preoccupation. So part of allowing the conditions for joy is, is not, of course, it's not an option for most of us just to opt out of life. But opting out of busyness is a real option for us. And acknowledging that sometimes, you know, busyness gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a sense of direction that sometimes, even though we can quite loathe being so busy, we can at the same time be quite attached to it. So one of the conditions for joy to arise is to actually cease being so busy. Calmness 
is actually, uh, although calmness follows on in the factors of awakening, calming our lives is actually also a condition for joy to arise. Because one of the conditions for joy to arise, in my understanding, is a very clear sense of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness in all that we do. Wholeheartedness in our seeing, wholeheartedness in our listening, wholeheartedness in our way of being present. Now, of course, another factor, condition for joy to arise is really not to take it all too personally. <laughs> it's very major. You know, just don't take it all too personally. You know, that's pretty joy suffocating. We take it all so personally. Now, I think that we would like, all like to imagine that perhaps there's a shortcut to this factor of joy. But in reality, it's born of the very things we've been talking about. It's born of interest, of passionate interest, of investigation, of mindfulness. Now, I think sometimes we, we are mo probably mo most often hear the word pity or joy, and, and John will go into this more, I think, as a, a quality that is associated with a very deep concentration state or jhana or an absorption state. That's often how we hear about the quality of piti, that there's a sense of, of great joy that arises. But in the factors of awakening, the Buddha is actually not speaking just about meditative states. And he's not speaking about these factors being the same as concentration states, but qualities and factors that are cultivated in all circumstances and all moments of our lives. So it's very important to reframe, for those of you who have more experience or associations in practice, to reframe in this context our understanding of joy. Not as a state, but as a way of receiving, a way of relating, a way of being present in this life. Now, it's also just important to note that in the awakening factors, joy is a quality that actually precedes samadhi. It's a forerunner of samadhi. And, you know, there, is a, a, there are suttas, discourses, where the Buddha actually says that in a mind of happiness, concentration or wise attention finds a true foundation. And why, why would he say that? You know, because usually we think happiness is a result of concentration. Happiness is a result of wise attention. You know, why would he say that it's, it's a condition for the, for the embedding and deepening of concentration of samadhi? I think it's really simple because it's very hard to develop a sustained <coughs> attentiveness when our attention is constantly being snagged by conflicts, arguments, contention, um, unfinished business. When we're constantly caught in craving or aversion, it's actually really hard to find that level of samadhi or collectedness or, or attention. Now, I think that joy could be some, it's sometimes described by what is absent, you know, because sometimes it's very hard to actually find, you know, to describe it well, actually, this is a very traditional Buddhist way anyway. 
you describe things by what is absent, <laughs> you know. And, you know, joy is, is, fa is what, you know, it, it's like, a, and I've said this when John and I were teaching together last week, the falling away, there are no vacuums in nature. And that the falling away of the unwholesome, the unskillful, the unhelpful, does not leave a vacuum behind it. In fact, joy is the fruition of the falling away of the unhelpful, the unwholesome, and the unskillful. It is what arises. It's the nature of a mind that's really not in dispute with anything. And I want you to consider a mind that's not in dispute with anything. You know, it doesn't matter what's served at lunch. You know, it doesn't matter if all the plums are gone and there's only apples left, you know. <laughs> It doesn't matter, you know, that, that the morning was cool and the sun was shining. You know, it's not in dispute with anything. Now, just think about how much of that disputing we have with the world goes on, never mind the disputing that we have with ourselves. Hmm? And how that disputing, that state of contention, suffocates joy because it, it suffocates that quality of, of, of appreciation, of welcome. Now, it is, it is difficult with language, to, to find English language, to find the right words for some of these qualities. Now, clearly in our lives, there is sensual joy, you know, and, and this is not, you know, something that's frowned upon or poo-pooed or, you know, encouraged to get rid of it. There is sensual joy in this life, you know? Ah, the joy of a warm shower, you know? It, you know, there's plenty of sensual, sensual joy in our lives. It comes to us. Uh, there's also a way in which, and there's appreciative joy. The ways that we can so delight in, in the blessings, in, 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 the, in the good fortune of others. You know, the appreciative joy of being supported, of being um, listened to, of being cared for. You know, the appreciative joy we, we find in, in nature. There are many, many different dimensions of joy. But the quality, I think, of joy that's spoken of in the awakening factors is a non-sensual joy. <coughs> it's not speaking about a sensual joy. It's speaking much more about a non-sensual joy. And it's really a joy born within, inwardly generated, inwardly born. Now, again, I, I struggle a little bit, you know, I, I struggle a little bit to find the right words, you know, because personally, and John might disagree with this, but I, I don't always see joy and happiness as being the same, you know, at least not the way that I think of happiness, because I think of happiness often as, as being caused or linked to events, you know, something lovely happens, I'm very happy about it. You know, but then I can see something unlovely happens and I can be very unhappy about that. You know, so happiness and unhappiness, the way that we often use it, is so tied to events and sometimes even worse, you know, we think something has the power to make me unhappy and something else has the power to make me happy. 
we might consider happiness, and I spoke about this yesterday, as one of the emotions that's linked to events, and we don't always have happy events. So we don't always have happy emotions. There's also sadness. But pity, pity is of, pity is of a different order. And I, and I just want to speak about some of the kinds of pity we might both experience and we might think about cultivating. You know, we might actually think about cultivating. First, we create the conditions that allow for joy to arise. But even then, it's almost retraining ourselves, isn't it? But because we've spoken already so often about our tendency, well, even in one of your, your feedback sessions this afternoon, where, you know, there's something profound about being miserable, you know, and, you know, because, you know, and I remember this in my own meditation, some of my meditation background, you know, that if people were kind of imploding in the hall, other people used to sort of envy them because they were, you know, really getting to grips with things and really going deep, you know, so that if you were kind of content and happy, you're somehow missing the point, you know, <laughs> you weren't actually, you hadn't gone deep enough. So, but I think it, it just does show something of that inclination of a mind again, that, you know, the, how the imperfect and the difficult so tends to fill our consciousness. So joy is, is in a way, retraining. It's reteaching our hearts. It's almost reteaching, reeducating our minds to travel a different pathway. And we're, again, we're not kind of starting from nothing because we have all got that capacity for joy, all of us. Now, one way of cultivating joy, of course, is to cultivate that sense of appreciation inwardly and outwardly. And for that to be there, we need actually to be attentive. We need to be mindful. I mean, you, you have seen the difference, haven't you? you walk in a walking meditation, where again, you can be doing that walking meditation, you know, replaying the argument with your boss for the, you know, 57th time. And, you know, and you come in, you realize nothing has been seen. Nothing has touched you. Or you could have been walking on the moon. You know, it, it wouldn't make any difference. And there's a completely other way of doing, walking that same path with that commitment to wholeheartedness, and you see how the world comes alive. And in, in many ways, I think that, I feel that mindfulness awakens the world. You know, mindfulness brings the world to life. Because that which wasn't even entering our consciousness is suddenly so present for us. And this is not at all abstract or theoretical. This is something we can all just explore and experiment with every moment. The way that mindfulness actually not only illuminates the world, but awakens it. And that's the grounds for appreciation. That's where we see wholeheartedly, listen wholeheartedly, touch wholeheartedly, and actually feel that sense of connectedness. And there's a tremendous joy in actually the simplest of things. The simplest of things. You know, to marvel at a single leaf. This quality of joy also has something to do with the wise use of our sense doors. 
the wise use of our sense doors because we really see how our sense doors, our eyes, our ears, our bodies, are really kind of simply the, do the bidding of our thoughts and do the bidding of our tendencies and habits. Hmm? And there is, is a saying that, you know, used wisely, in Tibetan tradition there's a saying used wisely, this body, this mind is a raft. And you know that this body, this mind does about bidding of both the wholesome and the unwholesome. And that used wisely, this body, this mind is a raft to freedom. And used unwisely, this body, this mind anchors us, tethers us to samsara. So it is really acknowledging how we use our sense doors, you know, whether they are being the kind of doing the bidding of craving and aversion, which allows very little joy, or whether we are using our sense doors to actually receive. This is their job. This is their job to receive. The cultivation of joy is, I think, also the cultivation of a quality of contentment. It's stepping out of the fires of craving. You know, and to be able to ask ourselves what in this moment is truly lacking. What in this moment is truly lacking? Sensing the moment-to-moment liberation of letting go of craving and aversion. Learning to rest with what is rather than what might be. There is also the joy of integrity, the joy found within integrity. You know, the Buddha calls it at one point, the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. And again, it's going back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, the heart and mind that's not littered with debris. You know, that's not littered with residues. There is a joy in engaging in what with that which is wholesome and beneficial and liberating. It's a passionate interest. There's a quiet but a very reliable joy. Okay. Well, I'm going to make you miserable. No, I'm not. (laughs) Um, The word piti has many meanings, like a lot of these words in Pali and Sanskrit. Um, It has many, many meanings. It's a portmanteau word and is used in different contexts in slightly different ways. So the basic meanings of this word are joy, which is the one that's being mentioned again and again. It can mean happiness. It can also mean zest. It can mean rapture as well. And it can also mean pleasurable interest in something. Taking pleasurable interest in something wholesome here. And the definition of PT um, means basically the contentment that arises out of the interest in obtaining a wholesome object. Now I'll say that again because it's a bit of a mouthful. But it's the contentment that arises from the thought or the interest in obtaining a wholesome object. And this means that particularly on the path, PT is arising as the, the, the thought, if you like, of obtaining that desirable object, per se, let's say the big one, of liberation, and through this practice. So it's a contentment. It's not the actual attainment of the object or the getting of the object. 
It's the thought that one might get it. Yeah. It's the thought that one might get it. It's the, almost the excitement, the zest and the rapture. And so, of course, consequently, in this particular definition of PT, outside of the usual explanations of it in the jhanic state, PT is arising out of sati, and it's arising out of investigation and discernment, and out of the energy that we put into both sati and the investigation, the balanced energy. So it's a natural arising phenomena. Here specifically, it's linked to the wholesome, to obtaining the wholesome, the desire for the wholesome. This, if you like, is legitimate desire. Yeah. Um, there are so many illegitimate desires, and you hear kind of desire as being a no-no in Buddhism. You know, it's got to get rid of desire. Well, actually, in this case, it's not. It's actually saying desire here, chanda, which is actually a different word. Let me write this up on the board. It's actually a different word from the word that we normally use. I put my pen. Doesn't matter. Use another one. It's a different word that's used to indicate this form of desire. This is the desire for liberation, the desire for the development of virtuous qualities, for compassion, for the development of kindness, all of these things. Out of the arising of the thought of the obtaining of those things can arise, of course, PT. Yeah. Can't you? Okay. I'm sorry, I've lost my pen. It's ah. C-H-A-N-D-A. I found it. <laughs> it's, double, it's double C, actually. H-A-N-D-A. So, this form of desire is legitimate. It's directed towards the path. It's directed towards the wholesome. Um, as such, and again, I'm going to make reference to things we've already talked about, that this form, PT, actually is contained within the aggregate of the sankharas, the volitional formations. It, it's to be found in there. And it's to be distinguished from another word, which is often used. Let me just move this out of the way. It often dis has to be distinguished from another word, which almost goes together with it, which is sukha. Sort of blissful state, a rapturous state that arises. And again, this is a word that's used often in relationship to the jhanas, to the deep meditation, meditative absorptions. However, sukha arises on the obtaining of the object. Yeah. Whereas PT is arising in relationship to the thought and interest in obtaining that object, sukha arises in the, on the obtaining of the object. Now, I'm not particularly indicating liberation, but say the obtaining of the object of virtuous behavior, of wholesome behavior. If you like, it's an indication that you're becoming more skillful in your life. When you get the arising of piti, the thought, and then you get the actual feeling of elation, actually this is how both of these feelings are described, particularly piti is described as elating you. you know, as you begin to get more skilled in what you're doing, in your practice, and I mean this in terms of your daily life and the ways that you orient yourself in your daily life, 
that time, for example, when you stop yourself going down the unwholesome and find yourself doing something which is far more wholesome, or even just having the thought, actually, in this situation, I don't want to be like this, I'd like to be like this. Instead of being angry and hateful, I'd like to be compassionate and kind in this situation. And even just the thought of that can create this feeling of pity. So elation is its, if you like, manifestation in ordinary life. And um, I always remember when at Guy House, usually at the beginning of the year, we have done for a number of years, but last year, this year was slightly different, we taught a meta retreat for three years running. It was a long meta retreat, and it was three and a half weeks of doing meta and, and nothing else. And this lady came to see me and she said, you know, something's going on. <laughs> she said, I was up all night. I felt like dancing all night. <laughs> and she said, I'm a doctor, so I was checking to see whether I was going psychotic. <laughs> and it was Petey arising as a result of all of this intense metta practice, because this is a direct outcome of metta practice, um, concentrating the mind upon something extremely wholesome to obtain, you know, wishing to desire and obtain that metta situation. So piti is a contentment that you will get from a desirable object, a wholesome desirable object, let's put it that way. Um, the function of piti, as it's described in the text, is to refresh the mind and body. And it's the lightness that comes and arises um, upon you know, the fix, you know, the, the um, directedness of our attention upon something wholesome. And again, you can see this. It's described in the Abhidhamma as lightness and malleability of mind and body that arises. You know, in other words, it's the movement away from fixity and rigidity in our mental functioning and our actual physical functioning because the two are not separable, are they? Mental rigidity adds to physical rigidity, often, to tension in the body. Tension in the mind will also you know, produce tension in the body. Tension in the body will often produce tension in the mind. PT is the undoing of this. It's the refreshing. It's like being dipped in a beautiful cold water on a hot summer's day. <laughs> yeah. It's that refreshing. Um, and according to the text, it comes in quite a number of forms, um, from minor to major um, PT. Um, and a minor form of PT uh, you can often get sometimes, and I mentioned it actually the other night in relationship to a text, is something, a lovely word in English, I like this word, it's called horripilation. Do you know what this word means? When the hairs stand up. You know, when your hairs stand up at something, this is an indication of what's called minor piti. You know, you're being refreshed by it. Horripilation. Horripilation. I'll do it later when we've finished, if, if anybody wants to see it in English. And then there's momentary PT, so it comes in many forms. You know, just this minor thing, when perhaps you're reading something and the mind is directed towards something wholesome, or when you're hearing something being said, and it has that almost emotional tinge to it. This is a real emotional side of it. 
The teachings, by the way, are not meant to be kind of cold and dead. They're meant to, in some ways, enliven you, you know, to actually wake you up, even at the minor sense of waking up. And I, too, think you know, that we suffer from this problem in the West of making a virtue out of misery, you know, out of you know, the profundity of misery. I always remember a situation, just a little anecdote here, I always remember a situation when I was in India, living in Tibetan monasteries in the south of India. Um, and at that particular time, I was the only Westerner, actually, on the whole of, the, in this, the whole of this Tibetan monastery, which was about nearly a thousand Tibetan monks at that time. And uh, occasionally, we used to get visitations from Western monks, other Western monks, in the north, who used to come down. And I remember one day, there was a Western monk coming into the monastery, and one of the Tibetans kind of came up to me, nudged me in the ribs, and said, can you tell me why Western monks look so miserable? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of that, of course, is that we do take this sort of pious, miserable attitude towards a lot of things. And the teachings, if nothing else, should, and I'm going to use one of the meanings of the word, create zest in you. I think it's a lovely word, zest. You know, it's like the spice that comes out of, you know, the orange, the zest of the orange, when you, you know, basically just pierce the skin of it and you get that beautiful aroma arising. Well, this is the aroma of liberation that arises when you begin to pierce the skin a little of the carapace, this shell that we create for ourselves and see the possibilities that are offered, uh, opened up um, by practice, by deeply, deeply investigating your own life and that of the world around you as well. I'm not going to go into all of the forms of um, the different forms, but I hope that's given you a little taste. There are different areas of um, PT. The last one, of course, and perhaps I'll just mention this, is what's called pervading PT. There's actually five forms all in all. And pervading PT completely pervades the whole body and mind. You know, again, this total refreshment of body and mind. Um, it's likened to the way oil seeps into a piece of cotton wool you know, and pervades the whole cotton wool. You know, when you dip a little bit, you know, dip a cotton wool bud in a tiny, tiny bit of oil, it seeps up through it, doesn't it? And pervades the whole thing. Equally so, this pervading PT literally soaks body and mind in this particular you know, emotional state. And I use the emotional state here deliberately, actually, because we tend to think that there are no emotions, Buddha, we've got to go around completely emotionless. You know, it's not true. Um, it's the wholesome emotions, and this is a wholesome emotion when it's directed towards the virtues. And it's also just to, and I'm sure you get this sense of it, of the energy factor of PT. It, it, that's why it's an awakening factor. It is so energetic, that sense of refreshment. It's a sense of waking up, isn't it? When there's PT. When that energy and that joy is there, there's that sense of being very, very awake. I just want to say a couple of more things, really, just to finish this bit off. It can be, like most of the things we've talked about, actually um, awakened to a certain extent by reflection, as we begin to reflect deeply on things. 
I'm not going to go into them all, but I'm just going to pick out some of them. One of them is reflecting on sila, reflecting on virtue, reflecting on moral ethical behaviour, and what arises out of moral ethical behaviour. So that, again, can inspire. And so, actually, one of the other meanings, the word I used earlier on today, of, of this whole relational aspect of PT is that it's linked to inspiration. Yeah, it's inspirational in the true sense of the word. The other uh, dimension which can inspire PT, the arising of PT, is reflecting on generosity. And that means not just generosity with things. We all get hung up on that and money and all this stuff. It's reflecting on genuine generosity of spirit. You know, somebody who's completely open and generous with themselves, despite the fact they may have very little at all. And so that's generosity. Um, reflecting on peacefulness. Yeah. Peacefulness, reflecting on contentment, the subsidence of all mental disturbance. What a lovely state. No mental disturbance, no residue, no inner internecine battles going on you know, between aspects of your psyche. Yeah. The subsidence of that, the directing of the mind towards the possibility of that. You know, by any other name, that's liberation. Yeah. By any other name. Um, and actually, one of the last ones I'm going to mention here, just to finish this off, is reflecting on discourses and thoughts which inspire confidence. Yeah, inspire confidence. And confidence here, I'm translating for the word sada in Pali, which is usually translated as faith, which is a horrible translation of it because it sounds so Christian, Christo-Judaic, basically. Um, here what we mean is trust, confidence in something, you know, something that really, really inspires you to want to keep on practicing. So actually, this is a very, very important factor because it's actually the zest to want to keep on practicing for that desired object. Yeah. I'll rest my case. <laughs> so, should we take time for some questions? Uh, we'll take some time for some questions, yeah. So, now I want to take some time for some questions for the rest of the evening. I can indeed. Let me just have a slurp of water. Hopefully you can see it with this pen. <laughs> that's the word that's usually translated as faith. Um, you'll probably see that in loads of translations and popular books on Buddhism, but it's not a very good translation of it. It does, it does not do it justice at all. Confidence or trust, if you're going to use any terms at all. Yeah. Uh, put it this way, here's an example I once heard. Oh, what, oh sorry. That, that discernment colored by 
aversion, sorry. Judgment against. Would dis discernment colored by aversion would be a judgment against something. Discernment colored by greed would be a judgment sort of for something, making a case for something. And the question is, what does discernment look like that's colored by delusion? Because we see the way that our perception, which is then actually we're talking about perception there, not discernment really, because I would tend to use discernment in the category of, of wise discernment. So actually talking about perception that is colored by greed or, or by aversion or by delusion. And the, the, the best story I once heard was that, you know, when your perception's colored by, say you're going to a party, you're going to a party, perception colored by greed, you know, we'll be looking, what is there to eat, who do I want to talk to, you know, who's going to, you know, excite me, etc., etc., you know, who am I attracted to. Perception, judgment by aversion would walk into the same party and, oh, God, the food sucks, and, you know, who are all these people? I don't talk to anybody. How quick can I get out of here? Perception colored by delusion would go to the wrong party. <laughs> <laughs> Just really being lost. <laughs> it's not even any discernment happening. It's just confused. <laughs> Actually, not even seeing what's there at all because it's not even seen it. Are you, are, in delusion, you just see your own mind. You don't see actuality at all. Yeah. Um, I see how being content with how things are would make me content. Um, you know, it's just always how to have the balance. How do you how do you change things? Are are you allowed to try to change things? Of course. The question is, how do you, what, what is the marriage really of contentment and wise action? Mm. You know, because that's really what we're talking about here. And, you know, that has something to do with what we were talking about, how really investigation is what rec rescues our ideas of mindfulness from passivity, because contentment is not passivity, okay? Contentment is not being caught in a state of contention. So it is not saying this shouldn't be there, that should be there. It's not that state of personal argument. But it is also, of course, what discernment tells us is that we live in a world where there is much that is unacceptable. Mm. Not unacceptable because it's bad, but unacceptable because it leads to and perpetuates suffering. So there is much in the world that is simply unacceptable. And as much as we're asked in this path to engage with the lovely, I believe we're also asked to engage with the unacceptable. Mm. Mm? And that can be on very subtle inner levels, you know, of thoughts and words and acts that really do are destructive and cause suffering, or it can be a very much bigger picture 
of you know injustice, of racism, of ageism, of so you know all of these things in the world that are truly unacceptable. This is what actually compassion and what wise action is really asking us to engage our investigation and insight with the world as it is, and sometimes it is unacceptable. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we have to be agitated or aversive or hate-filled in that engagement. It doesn't mean we have to be invested in the results. It doesn't mean that we have to despise those who don't agree with us. It doesn't mean we have to throw anybody out of our hearts. We don't have to be agitated in that engagement. And if we are, we very rarely change things. Mm. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think the one thing is not to see Buddhism as quiescence at all, or quietism at all. Um, in fact, in some traditions, and again, I'm thinking slightly of Tibetan traditions here, but in some traditions, for example, even the term compassion gets retranslated. It gets translated as responsiveness or responsibility. So in other words, with that motivation of compassion, you don't just sit there and say, oh, I feel compassionate about everybody no matter what. You actually get up and do something. You know, and that is real compassion. That's compassion in action. Um, and so the path is one of, of acting, but as Christina said, and I just want to reiterate it, but without being attached to the fruit. Because actually the forces that come into play, even when you engage in something like social action, are often far beyond individuals or even groups. Yet we can get so agitated by being attached to the fruit and wanting that fruit to occur. You know, and that sometimes it just does not, you know, because of all of those forces that come into play. So again, it's, it's contentment, but without the agitation, you know, without the attachment to that fruit. So it's not quiescence at all, but it is action, but action without agitation. Things in our personal life. I mean, everything comes. So, what about the question? Is what about things in our personal life? You know, not just the great big, you know, world life challenges, but the things that we want to be different in our personal lives. Well, you know, why else would we practice? Clearly, there is this word that John used of chanda, of wholesome aspiration. Okay, and it's very important to really treasure that word the wholesome aspiration, the honoring of the wholesome longings for even more wholesomeness, mm. or skillfulness, or freedom, or peace. Now, but this is an area where we're constantly being asked to investigate in a completely honest fashion mm. in ourselves, to discern that very fine difference at times between wholesome aspiration and craving. And it's, it's often a very thin line, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. But sometimes then, you know, because it's not just saying that, you know, there's nothing about this teaching which is about resignation or, you know, all of those kind of qualities of just endure or put up with it, you know, or, you know, put on a brave face, you know, or struggle through it. There's nothing in this teaching that which is anything to do with those qualities because there are much more the qualities of fear 
you know, of fear, the fear of making changes. Mm. And this is about making changes, but it's about making informed changes. And that the ways that we make those changes are also informed, you know, by ethics, by skillfulness, by a sense of, of relieving suffering and opening our lives to more of these awakening factors. Yeah. I suppose finally I just want to say that the balancing act is really between, is really to not let your wholesome aspiration for change, either personally or collectively, drop into unwholesome behavior. Because that is what so can easily happen. Um, and you see this all too often, I think, in social active movements, where actually some of the things that people do in socially active movements drop into unwholesomeness. You know, they lose sight of the wholesome aspiration itself, and it becomes something very... I see this a lot, particularly we had it in Britain with the animal liberation movements and things like that, you know, which obviously was motivated by compassion and wholesomeness, but the activities they often engaged in was extremely unwholesome. And in that reaching for change, I think there's certainly a part of the investigation is it's always being aware that we're not falling again under a spell of enchantment. You know, in the belief, well, if I changed my partner and got that partner, I'd be a lot happier. <laughs> you know, or, you know, if I changed my house and got this new house, then that new house is going to make me really happy. So it's been very, very mindful of not falling under this spell of enchantment which is not the same as, about as bringing about wholesome change. And I think that strikes the difference between two terms, and a very important one, I'm only going to briefly mention it, but in what Christine is saying, between two terms. One is tanha, which is craving. You know, if only I had, I would be happy. You know, all the things that Christina has just mentioned. And chanda, which can be a clean desire for something wholesome. Tanha, by its very nature, will never be satisfied. Craving of this fault will never be satisfied. It's spoken about, one translation of it is an unquenchable thirst. Yeah. It's not like I can pick up a glass of water and quench it. Yeah. This is something that finds no terminal end whatsoever. So even if you get the desired object, you will not be happy. You have to, but it's very important to approach this whole thing as an investigation. There are no easy answers, you know, and that's okay that there's no easy answers, you know. And I think there's a real, there needs to be a real willingness to take on that ambiguity, that sense of not knowing, you know, because that, that is what an exploration is actually about, is the fact that there are no easy answers. And that can either evoke a sense of panic in there, or it can evoke a sense of passionate interest. Hmm? <laughs> Your hand's been going up quite a number of times, so I felt I had to. <laughs>
individual ancillary groups. Mm -hmm. So individual animal groups, like the other yogi said, what do we do about changing things? Given all of your admonitions, which are wise, could you give three examples, say, of what would be when the rubber hits the road, whether it's Burma or, or racism or, or a horrific loss of work in the personal and social context, what are three examples of right action that concretely, after you've done all your investigations and all the principles, some examples to the concrete of what are some right actions for change? Politically, <laughs> So the question at the end of that are, what are three examples of right action for change? Personal sphere, like the job and social sphere. God, it's hard to pick just three. Just three. Do you want to just pick one? I will go bounce them back and forth. Yeah, come on, you start now. All right. In Burma, the monks came out on the streets to support those who were faced with terrible injustice. The monks came out on the streets and the nuns, they led the demonstrations, they put themselves on the line. When they were shot at, they did not shoot back. One. Mm. Another one from the Buddhist world, if you want to, I think is a very good example of somebody who's politically active all the time the Dalai Lama, traveling continuously, speaking about um, non-violence, peaceful act action, negotiation. Um, despite the terrible things that's happened to his country, he still has a sense of humor. Um, I think this is a very, very good example of somebody who's literally politically active across, not just for his own country, which obviously is a major part of what he speaks about, but politically active in terms of you know, speaking for all oppressed peoples, um, I think is a very good example. Walking down the street with my father, who has a terrible in, in inclination towards anger, uh, seeing him about to hit somebody on the street, <laughs> <laughs> putting my arms around him and hustling him down the road, <laughs> saying, you cannot do this. <laughs> 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 I almost think, don't think you need to go any further. <laughs> That's three. <yeah. laughs> Yes, but the thing. The question. Um, well, I, I do think it's almost what I hear actually from that question is a frustration. Almost, the question is. Well, the, the question is well, look at what's happened to Tibet you know, and the country. And you could actually add Burma as well if you wanted into that. You know, despite the, the Dalai Lama's stances and the monks' stances, it still seems to be in terrible chaos and 
Tibet is suffering and the people have suffered in Tibet and the country is no longer what it was. I mean, that's actually impermanence, for one thing. Um, but without being glib about it, I think the other thing is we work within time frames which are extremely um, quick. We want to see things change immediately. I think that uh, a lot of change occurs slowly. So if you're talking about the effects of non-violence, then I think you're talking about something that works over a long period of time um, and changing the ethos. At this time, I don't think it's necessarily probably the right time that it's going to work. Now, if you want another example, a historical example, which you're all aware of, which is actually a, a person called Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. I mean, non-violence in that particular instance, um, and I think he was dealing with somebody different from the Chinese, um, but in that particular instance, worked. But it worked over a long period of time. It was something that was started at the end of the First World War and went right on until 1947. So it's quite a long period of time historically um, for, in order for that change to be affected. Um, so I think we do have instances, I think we have instances even with Mandela in, in, in South Africa of non-violence working and, and actually affecting the ethos of what occurs. Well, so bearing in mind, you know, I mean, we That's have a right tendency right. to also, uh, and I, you know, I would be one of the first to acknowledge all the terrible things, for example, that have happened in places like Tibet, like Burma, like Vietnam, especially to those who, especially in Buddhist cultures, there's actually quite a, you know, a very major annihilation going on of, of Buddhist teaching within traditionally Buddhist cultures. But we also have to be, I, I also have to be aware of not romanticizing things mm. also. You know, because the Dalai Lama will be the first to say, in many ways, things are a lot better in Tibet on many levels for many mm. people right now. You know, a friend of mine who, you know, practiced me for many years in, in Tibetan culture, you know, in the early years when the refugees were coming over the mountains, he went back to Tibet recently and he said, he says, you know, I've talked to people, he says, they're actually happy they're not cooking with a yak dung anymore. You know, they're happy they've got a doctor in the village. You know, you know, so not to just kind of have this kind of partial view that that's how things were and, you know, reality would be great if we just went back to how things were. Actually, things were not, oh, you know, not everything was that great, you know. So there's always, you know, one has to hold a lot of these shifts with a certain amount of perspective. Yes, there is the terrible, no doubt about it, no argument with that, you know. Yes, there is this which is actually better. So, you know, just bringing some of these things together. Can I, can I just say something as well in the, on the back of that? Because I think it's worth pointing out, uh, since the issue of Tibet often arises in, even in, in retreats like this, is that you have to remember Tibet prior to 1959 was a medieval culture. You know, the nearest equivalent you have of what Tibet was like in comparison with Europe would be about 1400 in Europe dominated by monasteries, a lot of social injustice, inequality, poverty. Um, it's a, I think Tibet holds a special view, a special place in the Western imagination. Uh, and it really does through things like Lost Horizon, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. Oh, I think that's one of the reasons maybe that the rest of the country hasn't, the other countries have not gone in because they don't see it as a real 
country or real people? No, that's not what I'm saying. No, that's not, no, it's not that's what, what I'm saying. saying. What, what I'm saying is I think that we can over, and this is really picking up on a point that Christina was making, that we can over-romanticize Tibet pre the Chinese invasion and think everything was hunky-dory in Tibet. It certainly wasn't. It had as many inequities and inequalities as medieval Europe with a theocracy governing it. You know, and the Dalai Lama actually would be the first to admit that, you know, um, but Tibetans like, because obviously it's very good, you know, to keep the issue still alive, to play off that romanticism, you know, and keep it alive to a certain degree. But there is nothing romantic about Tibetan culture, I can assure you. Now, I'm not saying that what's going on is good, I'm just saying let's balance it, have a more balanced view about, about what is actually happening there. <laughs> I wondered when that was going to come back to haunt me. <laughs> yeah, I th I, well, I think this is very, very, very important for interpersonal relations, particularly close interpersonal relations, because all too often there is no relationship. And um, what I mean by that is that the relationship gets fixed at a particular period of time, usually the period of post-infatuation. <laughs> when almost as if there's a snapshot taken of the other person. Um, and one day, perhaps 40 years later, somebody wakes up and goes, you've changed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm joking about this, but um, it's, it's very sad, isn't it? Because what actually has happened is something has been freeze-framed at a certain period of time until the mismatch becomes so great um, that this person no longer fulfills all the things that you wanted of them. You know? And often it, this is unfortunately the aspect of relationship that I was referring to, that there is no real relationship because actually it's a relationship of what you are for me, not what you are in yourself. Yeah. And actually, um, often, for example, that freeze framing won't allow change to be seen. Now, in patriarchal cultures, and I particularly think of Britain as being a very good example, I have, we had very good examples of this. I used to teach in a university in uh, Manchester, which is northern England, which is very pa patriarchal, patriarchal and very parochial. And a lot of the students we used to get were mature women coming back into a higher education. Um, the divorce rate was about 90%, because the men couldn't stand the changes that the women went through in coming into education and actually having a mind and showing that they had minds um, that were equally as powerful, if not more powerful, and not from the men they were married to. And so what I mean by negotiated change is really uh, you know, to, to literally to be involved in those day-to-day -day changes, the seeing of, and the acknowledgement of difference. You know, all too often, relationship is wanting you to be like me. You know, and when you're not like me, I don't like you. I mean, have you noticed that one? That's Even though we don't really like ourselves. Exactly. We want them to be like somebody we don't even like that much anyway. Which is why we really dislike Which them. Which is why we really <laughs> dislike them, because it's me doubled. That's right. <laughs> and disappointed. Exactly. <laughs> 
Now, I think you know, the, the realism of, of, of living with anybody, either closely or even in, in a much looser sense, is to acknowledge this change, to acknowledge it on a day-to-day -day basis, to acknowledge difference. Difference often is perceived to be frightening. It challenges us. Well, let's be challenged. You know? And actually, relationship is all about challenge. It's about somebody else not being like you. And as Christina points out, even though you don't like yourself, yeah, is not being like you. And this process of negotiation, what I'm calling negotiated change, is absolutely fundamental to relationship because it takes the me out of the dominance of that relationship. I did once, I'll just finish off on this because I, I came across a cartoon which I love. It, I've still got a copy of it somewhere. I often mean to photocopy it and bring it to retreats with me, which was of, of a couple sitting over a table. And he's leaning on the table, and there's kind of loads and loads of squares on, on this cartoon. And above each bubble above his head is me, 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 me. And it goes on for about 10 squares like this until eventually he leans back and she leans across the table as the bubble comes above her head and it goes, me. <laughs> and he leans back and goes, oh. <laughs> now there's not much acknowledgement of the other in that. Um, so, I mean, I think there's two problems. There's the problem of not seeing change, but there's also the problem of... of actually meing all the time, meing in relationship, combine together those two factors, the, the lack of appreciation of change and the meing that goes on so much of the time, you, wanting you to be for me in certain ways, uh, is absolutely um, catastrophic, I think, in relationships. There is no relationship at all. So it's actually being able to take on board the lessening of the meing and much more opening to the change that the other will go through. And sometimes a simple acknowledgement that change is too great, that, that, that people do move apart. This is part of impermanence. You know, again, we have, a, we have romantic notions which actually stem right back to the medieval period um, about romantic love itself and fixity and all the rest of it. Of it. Um, this is not, I think, very realistic. Change is written into everything. Remember what we said again and again and again. Change is written into everything. So it's how you actually negotiate that change with your partner or whoever you're involved with. So I hope that's enough. <laughs> what, what was your phrase again? It's a relationship of two negotiated changes. Just one more. Yeah, we can accept just one more question for tonight.
Did everybody hear that question? Because I can try and repeat. Okay, I'll try and get just paraphrase your question, which is uh, the question was how to remain more mindful in ordinary situations, daily life situations, where normally you would concentrate on the breath or on sounds or the body or something like that. Sometimes it doesn't seem feasible to do that in every like, day life situations. So, what are the suggestions about you know, being able to practice mindfulness in ordinary life? My first response to that, and I don't know what Christina's are going to be, and I'm going, I think I'll bounce this over to you after I've said this, is to make whatever task you're engaged in the object of your mindfulness. That becomes your touchstone. You know, so, for example, you know, I know it always gets used, but you know, something like the washing up, the hoovering, um, the cleaning up, the practical mundane tasks that we're all engaged in, you don't have to, you can, in some instances, use breath as a touchstone or the body, but to make the very task itself you're engaged in the object of your mindfulness. Because exactly the same things will happen as happen when you sit down on a cushion and try to watch your breath. Your mind will drift away. It will go boring. I want entertaining, please. <laughs> you know, and it will drift off into other things. And therefore, it's a question of, again, of noting what's going on, seeing what is happening, um, and bringing it back again and again and again to the task, having acknowledged what is there and having, perhaps I'd use this phrase as well, having befriended what is there a little, non-judgmentally. Okay, so it's very important not to equate mindfulness and concentration. Mm. You know, very often in formal practice, when we have a very specific, for example, touch point, you know, like breathing or mindfulness of body, we are developing, you know, a kind of single-pointedness within that. That's how we would describe it. Not so much concentration, but a single-pointedness, which is, you know, very strengthening for the mind, you know, very wholesome, very helpful. But of course, in other situations, that single-pointedness as such, really the, the object needs to get a lot bigger. Mm. You know, and it doesn't mean, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, like I remember, like, say, when my children were small, and I would be, say, like, having, needing to do some, you know, cook dinner or something. You know, it wouldn't have been helpful for me to be so concentrated on cooking dinner mm. that they would fall off a cliff outside. You know? <laughs> so you would need to have, you know, I, I would experiment, you know, you need to have that kind of more spacious mm. mindfulness, which is very receptive, very inclusive of everything around you. And yet within it, there's also a little bit of foreground, but you're moving from foreground to space to foreground to space. You know, I find like, like walking through an airport, you know, that there's ways in which I, I endeavor to be really quite mindful in those situations and quite um, guarding of the sense doors, I might say, because there's an awful lot I don't need to see, hear, or engage with, most of it, you know. But I do need to get to my gate. You know, so I need to keep my eyes on where are these signs that tell me where to go. But I also don't need to be kind of like, you know, a beggar at the sense doors. So there's a sense of kind of holding the kind of attentiveness within this bigger space and yet not being so exclusive that I lose my way. And if, if I give you an example like of wrong, you know, of concentration that doesn't have that kind of clear comprehension, 
you know, I remember, you know, a few years ago practicing at the Forest Refuge, you know, and I was, you know, super concentrated, so concentrated one day, you know, that I went to get my food and so mindfully walked over to the condiment table to get some soy sauce my rice and poured bals balsamic vinegar over my entire meal because I forgot to read the label. I was very concentrated. I didn't have any clear comprehension in that moment. You know, so you're always having to kind of balance this kind of foreground space, foreground, you know, space, knowing, for example, when it's really appropriate to really bring that single pointedness in, which is very helpful, you know, for the mind indeed. You know, but also knowing when actually that becomes a, a kind of defensive mindfulness, you know, and defensive mindfulness does not help the mind. Because it, it, it's, it's kind of a clinging to an object, you know, which is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's as bad as being lost in objects, you know. So we, we need to be very aware in life where we engage in a kind of defensive attentiveness. So it's using these tools, you know, and that single-pointedness, of course, is one aspect of mindfulness. But, of course, it's not the whole story because mindfulness is also very, very inclusive and fluid and receptive and investigating. You know, those are also aspects of mindfulness. So it's kind of playing, you know, I think of it kind of like playing a, a keyboard or a musical instrument or something, you know, like when you need to focus, when you need to kind of open up a bit more, but to be creative with it. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think the whole thing is contextual. Depends on the context. Sometimes, as Christine is saying, you know, that kind of much wider mindfulness can be appropriate. Other times, a much more concentrated mind, if it's, for example, you're on your own and there isn't anything else there to do. So it really needs you to examine, again, with attentiveness, you know, attentiveness um, the context in which you find yourself. And then, therefore, the mindfulness will change. I think the problem is we can often hear the word mindfulness and think of a monolithic entity. And it isn't one thing, it's many, many different things. It's the way of turning the mind in particular situations. Yeah. So one time the Gestalt version that um, Christine is giving you of, you know, of, of foregrounding and backgrounding, various a aspects of the information that's coming through you um, is appropriate, where other times a more concentrated aspect might be appropriate. So there are many, many different forms. So I, th I think we are going to take a time for some walking now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.